welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. We are thrilled to be back with episode five of our Pitchfest 2022 series, where we chat to founders and startups who've been finalists in Pitchfest 2022. We're so lucky to have some incredible entries and today is no exception. We have Dr. Will Bateman, who is the CEO and founder of C-Cell. My name is Amelia. I'll be one of your co-hosts for today, but I am joined by the man himself, Tim Silverwood. Hi, Tim. This was an interesting and fascinating uh, combo. It's really just an indication, I suppose, of the the breadth of solutions that come through initiatives like Pitchfest. And we're there at the end reviewing sometimes hundreds of applications and going, wow, I did not even know this solution existed. So it's constantly inspiring for us. And hopefully through these podcasts, it's also inspiring for you. That's it. And, you know, C-Cell, it's fascinating because I don't think I'd actually heard of this process or that this was possible uh, until we saw C-Cell's pitch video come through for Pitchfest. So encourage everyone to go check out that pitch video. But basically, they grow digital living reefs. And this is via a process called mineral accretion. And now if you're anything like me, you're going to be wondering, what is that? Uh, And I'm going to tell you. So basically, they start with a a structure. um, And then they run a low, safe electrical current to that structure. Currently, it's a type of metal, I can't remember which, but they're they're thinking of um, eventually it's going to be a a biostructure. They run a safe electrical current to it and that causes seawater minerals to crystallise into the same rock that's found on natural reefs. This is like crazy to me. They're essentially using the minerals in existing seawater and making them kind of bond to this frame to create reef, but it's like actually the same almost DNA or buildup of a, of a natural reef. Got to love the scientists, huh? They're out there figuring out things that we could never possibly wrap our, our, our mere mortal brains around. So thank you, Dr. Will. Yeah, look, obviously the, the problem that these guys are addressing is the, the loss to coastal biodiversity and coral structures, which is hugely problematic when you have rising sea levels and uh, heightened sea states as a result of climate change. So this is a really important solution because around the world we know that so many coastal communities are, um, are suffering and at risk due to the, the ferocious ocean that is brewing out there. So any solution like this is going to be very, very welcome and have a lot of opportunities. But yeah, fascinating that you can actually use a, a low charge to almost help speed up some natural processes and in doing so activate these structures to become reefs because once these reefs are got that sort of baseline growth on them, then a lot more of that natural biodiversity can start to attract and you can actually end up with a really strong and important barrier and protective zone and enhanced ecosystem along these coastal fringes. So, yeah, well done, team. Very interesting solution. Yeah, and to add a layer to that, this whole thing, obviously there's power involved because they're running this safe uh, you know, level of current through it. So you compare this with, you know, wind, solar uh, or sea cells, wave energy extraction technology. So there's multiple ways to kind of pair this with clean energy to, to power it, to power that process, which is super fascinating. Um, and you've just touched on it there, Tim, but to, to, to lay it out really simply, just in case the audience are wondering, you know, the reef structures are great. We talked a little bit about coastal erosion Can you run us through just a couple of the highlights of what this can be used for? You know, the structure's great on their own, but where do they put them and what does that exactly do? 
Yeah, so I think they're going to have a lot of opportunities similar to some of the other startups that have come through working on coral reef restoration and repair and rejuvenation, like Coral Vita, for example. There's a lot of zones around the world where perhaps tourism is a very, very big and vital part of a local economy, or you have a large tourism company wanting to protect their coastal asset and perhaps enhance the local biodiversity and the ecosystem to support what they're offering as a tourism um, you know, location. So I think they're going to find lots of opportunities in those zones that are either a threatened strip of coastal erosion where perhaps the other alternative is something hideous like a vertical seawall, which we know are terrible for not just exacerbating further erosion and further problems, but are completely unnatural and therefore terrible for biodiversity. So they can look towards those zones, but also look to really enhancing areas that perhaps are just on the decline, but need a little bit of stimulus to help make sure that they don't go into further decline. Um, And really interesting to know if they can actually help to you know bring back thriving underwater marine life ecosystems because that could be its own offering in itself to people passionate to see and experience artificial reefs which we know uh, is the case with things like sunken vessels and various other underwater sculpture parks and and things like that so yeah can't wait to see where these guys go next yeah that's so cool it's, it's great to see all the kind of use cases of this a fascinating process and technology. Uh, huge thank you to Dr. Will Bateman for for coming out and uh, or coming out, but coming to his computer and uh, having a chat with us. I know people are going to find this really fascinating. He actually also gives a really great analogy for explaining what a reef does when a wave uh, is coming in and breaking over it. I won't spoil it now, but listen out for that. It was a really clever analogy. I, I very much enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, enjoy, guys. Leave us a bit of feedback on what you thought. Tim, thank you very much and uh, great job on this interview. Thanks very much. Enjoy, everyone. Okay, I'm very excited to have on the Ocean Impact Podcast Pitchfest 2022 series today Dr. Will Bateman, who's the founder and CEO of C-Cell, tuning in tonight on a rather late evening from London whilst I'm down in Tasmania. How are you, Will? I'm really good, Tim. Thanks for having us on. Oh, look, thank you for being here. Thank you for applying to Pitchfest 2022. And thank you for all the work that you're doing to help improve the health of planet ocean. Um, Let's go straight there. Tell us about C-Cell and tell us about your solution to what is a very important ocean challenge. So C-Cell started out, if I could go back in time a little bit, we actually started out developing a wave energy device. And it was during the trialing of that out in Mexico that we stumbled across some hotels which were shoring up their shoreline with sandbags. And I then had a drone at the time and I put it up and took some images and compared those two images from Google Earth from just two years earlier. And we'd seen a dramatic reduction in the size of the beach for about 30 to 50 metres. And we kind of pivoted as a company. So we still develop a wave energy device, but we sort of pivoted towards thinking, well, actually, can we use that wave energy to affect a positive change to the wave climate by growing artificial reefs? So we merged some a range of different technologies um, based around something called mineral accretion. So we now grow, effectively grow artificial reefs. We install a lightweight sort of steel and soon to be uh, a bio-based structure around which we then grow rock 
and around that we encourage the growth of things like oysters, corals um, or mussels that provide the bulk to the, the reef and in turn cause ocean waves to break and also provide a fantastic habitat for marine life. So we're, we're taking off a number of parallel um, challenges. But isn't that awesome though that you, you go in and you think that you're the solution that you're developing is is for one area and in the process of doing that you sort of your eyes are opened up to other challenges and you start to think well hang on we've actually got the capacity to address this challenge and then you know, maybe in the future or maybe not we can incorporate our existing mission into what we're doing now so yeah tell us a little bit about this mineral accretion because i suppose dealing with coastal erosion and looking at ways to promote coral reefs or any structures i suppose to prevent coastal erosion you know it's it's a complicated process, but you figured out this way around mineral accretion. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the sort of the science of this process. So, I mean, mineral accretion isn't isn't necessarily new. Um, it's been a it's a technique that's been used on and off for about sort of thirty years. What we did is um, we've effectively tried to sort of industrialize it and also try to very carefully control the the process so that we can grow precisely the type of rock that we want in the, in the ocean that is also ideally suited to um, not only affecting the waves or changing the wave climate, but also is ideally suited to uh, providing like a foundation on which oysters, corals and other sort of invertebrates can be placed. Now, the technique itself is fairly straightforward. We run a very small electrical current through the water um, typically between sort of three to sort of six, seven volts. And what that does is that causes around the the two pieces you have of that system, what we, we often call like the anode and the cathode. And the cathode is the, the main structure, and so that's the main reef. And what the electrical current does is it causes around the around the reef the pH of the water to go up by about two, two, two points on the sort of pH scale. And that in turn causes minerals are naturally found in the seawater. I mean, the sea is uh, a big soup of everything you can imagine. But there's two minerals in particular we're interested in is calcium and then magnesium. And there's a lot of magnesium. There's not so much calcium, um, but calcium forms a very strong um, rock um, known as aragonite, whereas magnesium forms a quite a soft um, rock. I mean, pure and effectively um, magnesium hydroxide. And, and that's known as brucite. And brucite in its purest form is very soft. I mean, you can carve your name in it with your finger, but it grows very quickly. And what we're trying to do is grow a blend of those two. So it's a bit, a bit like, you know, Goldilocks with her porridge. We want it to grow fast enough, but not be too soft, but not grow too slowly, um, therefore be too hard. And if, in fact, if you grow pure aragonite, you, what you end up doing is sealing the whole system, and then you close down the ability to actually electrify it. So it's it's finding that sort of um, Goldilocks zone somewhere in the middle. Right. So just going to go through this for the sake of everyone listening in. So you know, one of the questions we like to ask is, you know, how is this problem solved currently? So I think people all around the world could imagine a coastal area that they're familiar with and perhaps a problem of coastal erosion and some of those traditional uh, techniques might be, you know, break walls and big concrete structures and various other things. But what you're talking about really is creating a, 
a substrate which is which is living, which is ready to become a, a thriving, healthy ocean ecosystem because you're creating this substrate which is very conducive to life. Am I on the right sort of wavelength there? Pardon the pun. You are. You are too. We're actually doing two things slightly differently. The first up is that if you if you look at traditional coastal defences. I would argue they haven't really changed since the Romans. So uh, as a, a Roman, you went out and you picked up the largest piece of rock you could and you threw it in the ocean and you pile those up until something happened. You know, you, you, you stopped the waves. Today, of course, you know, we, you know, we're not limited by size so much, you know, so we can easily manhandle chunks of rock that are 5, 10, maybe 20 um, tons in weight, which perhaps the Romans weren't so easily able to do. But it's... It's a sim. It's a simply a sort of scaling up of that same process. I mean, and now you'll find a lot of companies are using concrete elements that to, they pile up instead. To put that in context, um, we've recently been doing some work down in Israel where they're also break, building some breakwaters made out of um, stone. They are shipping that stone 140 kilometers across the across the country. They are placing. Just to build one breakwater of about 200 metres, they need about 600 trucks of, of rock. Each truck can carry somewhere between three and five, maybe six chunks of rock. I mean, you know, not a lot. Um, and it takes them probably six months to build one of these breakwaters. And it's, it's a relatively slow process. So we, looking at all of that, I mean, it's incredibly environmentally destructive, not only in terms of you carving out some... Uh, you know, rock out of a mountain somewhere, but also the, the fuel and the energy to, to ship it across. And then you've got the problem when you get to the far end is how do you actually get that rock out, out into the ocean? Um, I mean, you could put it onto large barges, but what the Israelis are doing is they're actually building a, effectively a road out into the sea. They then make their breakwater and then they dig that road out again. Um, so that, you know, there's an awful lot of material moved to, to and from different locations. I mean, I think every single piece of rock probably moved about 10 times before it reaches its final sort of destination. So that in itself just seems a bit crazy. So, so we, you know, we, we have a lightweight solution to that. The second part of the bit that we're doing, which is very different, is that if you look at a lot of breakwaters, they are, they sort of pierce the surface. They, they are trying to absorb the energy through creating creating lots of little channels through through your structure. So the water, as it breaks into it, it sort of disperses its energy as it sort of rushes between these big pieces of rock. What we're doing is um, trying to replicate in much more closely what natural coral reefs do. So we're building a structure that sits well below the surface. So when those larger waves come in, they are, um, they are destabilized as they pass over the reef and then break far out at sea. I mean, when I say far out, sort of 100, 200 metres out to sea. Now, the analogy I would relate that to is if you, Tim, were to run at me and I tried to stop you, it's relatively hard, yeah? I mean, I'm, you're probably going to flatten me. But if I was to put my foot out and I can trip you up, I can get you to crash to the floor and then you destroy yourself, yeah? That's really what we want to try and do. We want to get the, those larger waves to break in on themselves rather than trying to crash against our structure or piece of rock because... Fundamentally, if you start to try to stop at the crest of a wave, you're typically going to lose. I mean, you'll either just find you have you know erosion very quickly, or you will, or it will just shift your your structure out of place. And in large rocks, in big storms, do do get moved. So that's really our, our sort of distinction. Fantastic, and I'm loving these analogies. I think that's going to help people out there listening in 
really understand it. And of course, they should head to your website or or check out your pitch video from Pitchfest 2022, where you can really see and get a sense of, of how this works. So super agile then being these steel or bio-based structures, but the complexity must then come in, in how to create the electrical current to stimulate the accretion. So tell us about, you know, how you're addressing that and how you can see that working in future as as the the business scales there's things like that with that and that's where you sort of started right with the paddle formation for wave energy to power it so just tell us a little bit about that process so in suitably wavy locations you know we aim to put a wave paddle alongside the reefs but we've got to a stage now that we can pretty much grow all the rock we want on our structures within about sort of four months maybe five months of of time so it's relatively quick um, and we're now starting to think about whether, from our earliest installations, we've, we've been using solar. But as we progress, I think there's a, an opportunity to potentially containerize a lot of what we do. So you, so you either grow the rock in a, in a in a port or in a container, and then you take those units out into the sea. The advantage of, of doing some of this work in um, sort of contained environments is you potentially can grow the, grow the material even faster. You can put a lot more power into it and you can create a much more sort of controlled environment. So I think the future for us is, is more likely to be that we will build our units um, in sort of protected areas and then just float them into location. At the moment, what we're doing is we are um, we're taking power out to those to those reefs. Now we, we've got two ways that we can actually take the business at the moment. If we take power to the reefs, the advantage of that is that we have now got a, we'll call it, we're kind of calling it like a digitized reef. And this means that we can put sensors onto it. We can actually start to listen to our oceans. We can, you know, build these into, you know, effectively live scientific platforms. So not only can we grow the rock, but thereafter, we can actually do quite a lot of monitoring around what's going on in the ocean. So obviously we're interested in things like, you know, the, the wave attenuation that we're, we're achieving, but also we're fascinated around the sort of the marine habitat that we're creating. And we've seen, you know, huge, huge increases in the number of fish and sort of mammals in and around our structures. Um, and we want to sort of continue to promote that. And one thing that we've realized, and we're actually doing quite a lot of research on this at the moment, is that there is um, a surprisingly little understanding around what's going on in our oceans. Despite the fact that you know our oceans are 70% of the planet, there isn't actually that much data being collected. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of sort of sparsely collected data, but there's not a lot that's being collected over long periods of time um, covering reasonably large areas of the coastal environment. And we'd like to think that we could actually change that. So I think as the business evolves, we're going to be doing a lot more work around sort of marine data and, and um, collecting and analysing that and making sense of it. Um, and as I said earlier, I think there's a number of innovations we're going to be making to the reef itself and looking at different ways in which we can deploy it in a more efficient and more um, rapid way or approach. Fantastic. That sounds really exciting and really great to hear about those those potential pathways forward. I guess people listening in, again, I always like to put myself in their shoes. They're like, oh, I've, I've got a coastal erosion issue around where I live. So let's, I guess initially this is sounding like it's very much geared towards those climates where tropical reefs existed or, or do exist but are at risk. Um, tell us a little bit about you know, any possibilities of applications beyond certain regions. 
Is it really just suited towards those coral reef environments? Very good question. So we, when we when we started, most of our work was actually in in Mexico, so very warm tropical sort of waters. Um, we've recently completed a study here in um, the Isle of Man, actually, um, so sort of in, in quite the opposite, quite cold waters. We managed to grow almost identical rock to what we saw in Mexico. It took us slightly longer. I mean, instead of four months, it was like five months. Yeah, but it was it's a comparable sort of timeline and we're now actually we're going to be deploying a reef down in Exmouth in in the coming months Um, so everything we're doing in Mexico works effectively quite well both here and in Israel and other places in Europe so we're comfortable in terms of you know I mean, this is a global solution. We, you know, we can apply it anywhere. The only, the only challenge we have in terms of, sort of certain coastlines is where you've got very deep water very quickly. So, and, and you can you can pretty much see this when when if if you are if you just follow the, the sort of the the lie of the land. If you've got a, a very high mountain or something and it's dropping into the sea, you can pretty much guarantee that you know. You only have to go a couple of meters out into the sea, and it's going to be very, very deep. In those sort of circumstances, I mean, it's not unique to us, but it's it's very difficult for us to build a structure big enough that, in a cost-efficient way, um, far enough out at sea that we can actually affect the change we want. So, in those sort of so those sort of sites, you're almost certainly going to want to sort of reinforce um, potentially with rock or concrete, and then sort of the traditional Roman style. Um, the actual shoreline, but in any other situation where, you, particularly where you've got a much more shallow gradient, um, we think there's a ton of things we can do to actually um, promote the, the, re- the you know the protection of that shoreline. And our, and our principal goal here really is just to wind the clock back in many locations. It's, it's you know we've many of the places we've seen 10, 15 years ago they were fine. You know Playa del Carmen in Can- in, in Mexico 20 years ago it was beautiful beaches. There were no hotels. The hotels have come in the sort of the last fifteen years because of the wonderful beaches, and then suddenly in the last sort of five years, they've suddenly lost all of those beaches. And it's it's what we're looking at is saying, okay, well, what's changed in that intermediate time? Okay, there's been construction, but the real change has been the intensity of the waves that are reaching those shorelines. So we just need to better take 20 percent of energy of the energy out of those waves. Which effectively takes us back to where we were in sort of 2010 or something. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, yeah, I guess I think about the coastal erosion hot topic areas that I'm familiar with, like down here in Australia. And in a lot of cases, again, about turning back the clock, if you do look back on the clock, you'll find that a lot of the locations where houses and structures have been built, they should never have been built there because historically there's been a lot of shifting sands and movement estuaries that change where they exit into the sea. So, But if you're looking at a location that used to have a good kind of barrier coral reef surrounding it and a very healthy shoreline as a result of that, then, yeah, you can sort of say, oh, well, we can actually do some intervention here to help to restore it to what it once was. But, you know, I think it's very topical and I know organisations like Surfrider Foundation in Australia and around the world are really trying to challenge this this issue of properties, beautiful, multi-million dollar properties on coastlines that really should never have been developed in the first place. I mean, do you also find there's a lot of locations 
like that that you're, you're working in, where there just shouldn't have been coastal development? I mean, the coastal development in itself, if it's done correctly, shouldn't have a, a negative impact. I mean, I mean obviously, you know, they, they need to be looking, thinking carefully about how they dispose of their, you know, wastewater and whatnot, I mean, in order to keep the, the marine environment safe. The biggest challenge is in most places is where that coastal developments are. They, they build piers or they decide they want to build a nice jetty or something that interrupts the the original profile of the shoreline. So you end up effectively creating a whole bunch of unintended consequences because if you think about most sort of shorelines, the sands has been moving around those shores for years. There's a really great example here in the UK with, with the Scilly Isles. So if you watch the Scilly Isles and you look at their beaches, they the sand is pretty much sort of walking around those islands on, on an annual basis. So certain certain years, certain beaches are really big. Other years, they, they sort of get depleted. But the, the guys in the Scilly Isles have measured this, and they've shown that actually the amount of sand around the island is, is pretty much constant. But different beaches grow and shrink at different times, right? And that's completely natural and it's completely normal. And when you have larger bodies of, of land, obviously like in Australia or whatever, you're still having the same those same processes going on. And it's quite natural to see certain beaches grow and shrink with time. Um, particularly particularly hurricanes come in will tend to reduce those. But they're very often hurricanes, you know, they may take sand from one location, but they will just deposit it somewhere else. And then throughout the rest of the seasons you will find that other wave environments may may restore that or you know just change it around so all of these are completely natural things the pro- what the humans are doing though is we come in and we we build something like a pier or, or, or some form of dock or even a, a marina and you end up diverting sand that would otherwise be running along those shorelines out into into the deeper ocean and once it gets that sand gets into sufficiently deep water it's effectively lost it's going to take a very large storm to get it get it back onto land and you know i mean coastal coastal engineers will talk about sort of sources of sink sinks for sand and one of the major sources for most sand is actually rivers i mean erosion from the land is bringing material down as that comes down it's effectively sort of sorted and it's this finer sort of um, material that ends up staying along near the beach, or, or very fine material actually gets washed out. But the, the the bits that sort of drop out near the shoreline from from sediment coming down the rivers um, ends up on your beaches, and that's a major source. And then you'll find that sand actually then sort of moves one way or other along along the coastline. And yeah, you we've just got to be much smarter as a as a race in terms of what we're doing when we build stuff just try not to interrupt those natural flow patterns yeah no thank you for that very very helpful for everyone let's let's go into you a little bit more um an engineer very experienced just tell us a little bit about your personal why obviously your this is your your career and it sounds like you're exerting some wonderful skills to to make a positive difference but sort of why i mean you mentioned the trip to to mexico but yeah tell us a bit why you you do what you do in, in terms of helping the ocean? I, on a personal note, I mean, I, mean, I went to a, a very good university. I was fortunate to, to get in there. I think I'm quite fortunate to have had a fairly good education, particularly with the support from the, sort of the UK government. And I've always felt, and I think uh, most of my team feel that as, as engineers and scientists, we need to help fix the planet. I mean, if I want to be rich, I could have 
worked in the city, I could have gone and joined a bank as, as many of my colleagues in, at university did. But I think what drives me is when I'm on my deathbed, I want to think, look back and think I actually made the world a better place. I didn't just move some money around in corners. I just, I've actually left a positive legacy. I, I've made the world um, in some strange way better, you know, and, and the jury's still out as to whether I'll achieve that. You know, we all guilty of flying around the world. I mean, I'm particularly guilty now because we have projects in a number of different countries. And I'm determined to make sure that, you know, what ultimately we do undoes a lot of the damage that I, I inevitably are doing as, as a human just being being on this planet. Um, and I think that's mostly what drives me. I mean, I obviously have a, a very close affinity with the oceans. I'm a, I'm a diver, I'm a kite surfer. I, I've kayaked since I was sort of, I mean, since my mum first put me in a boat, which is probably about the age of about six or five even. Um, and it's, you know, I, I have that affinity with the ocean and I, I love it, but it's, it's what's probably drives me more is, is from the engineering standpoint. And that's the challenges, you know, one could argue that engineers and scientists created all the toys that have messed up the planet. You know, if, if we hadn't invented the internal combustion engine, perhaps we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. But if, but having done that, it's I think it's incumbent on us now to see if we can engineer solutions to problems that we see around us. And, and those solutions mean we, we've got to think differently. We can't just regurgitate what we're already doing. You know, you're not going to solve the world by creating more concrete and throwing it in the ocean, which is what a lot of companies are doing to prevent coastal erosion, because concrete, as we know, is responsible for about sort of seven, eight percent of CO2 emissions. You've got to, you know, not only if you've got to come up with a solution to the problem, but you've got to make sure that solution is also sustainable. Mm. I'd love to go into this little section now where we just we learn about some of those you know, key challenges that you've you've had along the way. And I suppose going in with this bright novel innovation this new way of doing things into some industries that are quite powerful and quite happy with the status quo would be an area where you encounter some challenges but yeah maybe to share a bit of time particularly focused on those startups out there listening in some of those challenges that you faced and then we can switch gears and talk about some of your, your key achievements as well i think like every startup the bit that we all hate the most is is raising finance and um just having enough money to keep the lights on and move forward. The the bit that we all want to be spending our time on and the bit obviously we all love is is the engineering, it's the design work, it's 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 that element of it. For us, if you focus in on the, the technology, I think you know we we've actually been pretty good at designing things that have worked when we've you know, where, where we are focused on, on design, and I'll try and explain that a little better. Um, when, we, when we've looked at the challenges of, say, coastal protection, and when we actually we, we think about, okay, how do we build a reef? How do we electrify this? All of those pieces that we've, we've identified as being the big challenges, and we've and then spent quite a lot of time designing solutions to those and building the electronics, all of that's worked really well. What we have fallen a crop on is not thinking deep enough around the things that we just took for granted as one one of those being um, just underwater connectors so we, we we found electrical connectors from third-party companies you know things you can just buy off the shelf from amazon um, we've plugged those together and we've just kind of assumed that they would work and 
it's the smallest thing is actually one of the cheapest parts of our system that have actually then caused us the greatest greatest challenges because we found that you know barnacles grow all over them for some reason the plastic becomes brittle or whatever yeah and more recently we found you know i, I suppose it actually comes back to our original design work is thinking very carefully about how do you how do you manufacture the product um, again we we mostly got that right but when you're working in particularly developing countries you can't guarantee the quality of the steel you can't guarantee the quality of the welders you can't guarantee you know there's a there's a lot of extra elements that build up on top of it so we've spent a lot of time trying to make the solution as simple as possible and i think that if there's any advice i'd give to other companies is um yeah just think about the totality of everything you're doing first of all so even the things that you think, okay, that will definitely work, still do a sort of a risk assessment around it. But the other part to it is I don't think anything can ever be too simple. And I see this in coding, in the design of the electronics we do. You will know when it's right. When you look at something and you go, that's beautiful. Um, and it was probably one of the first... So we, we're not electrical engineers, or I, I certainly wasn't, but I mean, others in my team are now. But when we were first putting together some of our electrical boards, we had consultants coming in and looking at what others had designed and we were getting people to review some of the circuit boards. And one of the first comments that one of the engineers looked said, he goes, oh, this just doesn't look beautiful. And I was like, well, does that matter? Yeah. And actually it does, because ironically, when something looks, even on circuit board, even, you know, you open up your iPhone and you just look at the circuit board. If it actually looks beautiful, it looks all the lines are parallel, they all look nice and tidy. There's just something majestic about it that actually says, yeah, this is actually being very carefully thought through and designed. And when you make something simple, which is really hard to do, it invariably actually works really well. I, I, I don't know why I'm just trying to, it sounds a bit crazy, but it, that's how I find things. So if you look at a problem and it's you go, oh my God, this is complicated, throw it in the bin, go away and find something else. And when you eventually get to a solution, you go, actually, this is simple. You've actually got your perfect solution. <laughs> I was like extending myself and thinking about like, you know, nature and, uh, and aesthetics. You know, when you see something so simple in nature, it's just, it's, it, it reaches your eyes and your senses and it's beautiful. But sometimes you see things that are a little bit off and, you know, and, and you feel that immediately. So that's, that was a little parallel that I was, I was drifting off to when you were saying that. Yeah, I, to give credit to Steve Jobs, I think he, he said that maybe he didn't actually. I mean, a lot of people get credited with all sorts of quotes that they never said, but designing something complicated is easy. Designing something simple is actually really hard. Mm, lovely. Yeah, just discuss, I guess, some of those sort of key achievements that you've achieved with C-Cell over the years, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about some of those. Um, so our work really started on this in twenty. Um, 2019, 20, 2018, 2019. Um, before that, we were very much focused on the wave paddle. So the biggest single achievement to date is obviously getting um, some full-scale reefs and customers uh, across Mexico. Um, now we're working very closely with the Israeli government on, on a big installation out there. The big achievements for us is also really just understanding the, the electrochemistry around the rock growth. And having sort of optimized that now across multiple continents in terms of different water temperatures, different sort of mineral content. And then around all of that, we've then been building a 
you know, the, the electronic system, but as actually effectively a real-time um, data gathering platform. So we can control and monitor all of our reefs remotely from here in, here in London. Um, I can tell you exactly what any one of the reefs are doing at any moment in time. And that's then also created a, a platform upon which we can now put other sensors and we can start to, to effectively listen to our oceans, which I think is going to become our sort of new catchphrase for, for 2023. So, and obviously the, you know, the, the, the ultimate prize here was that seeing A, the huge increase in sort of fish and marine life that we've seen around our reefs. We've just actually ret- retrieved one of the units from Telchet and it's been incredible to see the marine life that's been growing across our structures. So we, we start off with quite a sort of sparse um, steel mesh and we, then, we, we grow rock. Once you get to the sort of critical amount of sort of diameter or surface area to your structure, you then find that the marine life sort of takes over. And that's been actually you know, amazing to see because uh, a little mollusk or something can't hold on to a very small bar. But once there's enough rock there, um, they can actually attach to that. There's a sort of tipping point that we're sort of narrowing down where um, marine life just takes over. So for a lot of our structures, probably about two-thirds of the overall weight of the material that we've we formed beyond the original structure has actually come from sort of marine life. And that's really, really exciting to see. And then I guess, and then the, the, the final thing, of course, is um, seeing, seeing coastlines coming back. So it's actually starting to see the sand rebuilding behind our roofs. That really is so cool. And um, yeah, congratulations. That must be incredibly rewarding. And suddenly all of those long nights and hard days uh, start to feel a little bit more justified. <laughs> well, they haven't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't stopped. No, of course not. They've just begun. Speaking of that, yeah, just if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about what you've got planned for the next uh, 12 to 24 months, what's the future hold? The, the big push that we're making at the moment is, I mentioned this earlier, so we're doing some fantastic work with Bath University. So it's looking at um, sort of making the reefs more sort of bio-based. So we're looking at using things like bamboo, potentially um, sugarcane or you know, other sort of, potentially even you know, corn stems or something like that. But waste materials, ideally, that we can then form into, into a reef shape. And with the ultimate objective here is, is just to remove the need for using any steel and to using materials that are readily available in, in the sort of local area. And, and bamboo is a, is a really good example. It's pretty much grows in most countries. So that's a, a big piece of work that we're doing, and it's supported, thankfully, by the Innovate UK from the UK government. Um, the next big, big sort of um, drive is around sort of marine sensing. So we're doing a lot of work now um, to look at how we can, you know, what type of sensors we ought to be embedding onto our platform. Collecting data in the marine in the marine world is exciting, but one or two bits of data is who cares? What, what we need is, you know, multiple years worth of data, and then it's time to and then analyze that. So. Right now, for example, we have cameras out in Mexico. We're looking at, um, you know, we're, we're observing the fish. We're using sort of machine learning to actually recognise those fish, uh, and then we are working with Cornell University to actually not only visually recognise those fish, but actually understand their acoustic signature. And acoustics is really, really awesome because now we can, if we can get that working um, as we want, you can actually now start to monitor marine life 24 7 so during storms when it's dark even when it's sort of you know very turbid waters 
which is not something you can do with visual cameras. So we can add a whole additional layer to understanding what's going to be, you know, how marine, not only fish, but mammals, how they move around um, structures. And with that in mind, we are also going to be branching out now this year um, towards supporting the offshore wind industry. So we're having some interesting discussions at the moment around putting our reefs around um, the base of wind turbines to prevent scour, but also to promote a sort of marine habitats in those environments, but also with the data to you know help them to monitor what's going on and around their structures so they can hopefully improve their operations. And also, you know, for them thinking about end of life, um, you know, they a lot of people do a lot of stuff in the ocean and there's an awful lot more development that's going to happen in the ocean as we move forward into across this century. You know, we've we've exhausted an awful lot of resources on land. I think many people are seeing the oceans as as a solution to an awful lot of our climate challenges. And as that happens, um, we can expect an awful lot more developments in the ocean. But we need to try to make sure that they are done in a way that they promote the marine marine life. They promote sort of marine protected areas. So when those wind turbines eventually are removed, because you know everything has a lifespan what's left behind is better than it was when it started. Um, I'm quite excited to get into that sort of space. That's quite a lot to be done in a year, but I think, I think well, that's, a, that's a start. <laughs> the future is bright. You did touch on this last question a little bit in another response, but you know, it's some key learnings, I suppose, for, for founders and uh, scientists perhaps who are thinking about commercialising their science. Yeah, what are some key learnings that you'd share about your, your journey? Key learnings. Just any advice for people starting out? Anything come to mind? It's really hard. To, I mean, I'm, I'm probably really bad at this because I'm. I'm. What I'm about to say is is that I I feel as a, a startup, you really have to keep a tabs on everything you you're doing. You know, there is outsourcing all of your software development. I think is a mistake. You you need to you need to bring in bring things in house. One of the first first bits of its advice I ever received was you know. As fast as possible, get your own front door. You know, working in sort of co-working spaces is fun and great, but actually you need to be able to sort of internalize an awful lot of your own stuff um, and having your own expertise um, in-house, be it electronics or software or whatever, um, is crucial. I think it goes without saying for every company out there, if, you, if you're not using computers you know, to their fullest, you are wasting your time, in, in my personal opinion. You know, it doesn't matter whoever you are, mcdonald's and you're serving burgers or you are an engineering company you you absolutely need to make sure that you are utilizing computers so everybody in our company is expected to have quite to be quite numerate and to be able to program in in some way um and the big bit of advice i would have for a lot of people is make sure you document meticulously everything that you're doing one of the big turning points for us is having our own sort of um, internal wiki it may sound quite a simple thing but we have a sort of wiki first policy so every bit of work anyone does has to be documented it even be it lightly to say you know this is where it is there needs to be some documentation or level of documentation around it um, before it goes out and the reason is is particularly with a small team um, we're all doing so many different things you know we're very diverse i'll be doing electronics one day i'll be in Israel the next it's it's there's just too much to remember and it's really important to be able to jump into a problem or jump into another segment of the business and immediately have some notes that you can grab and without actually having to 
you know, think, you know, we're not all sharp, super sharp on a Monday morning. So can we, you know, can you jump into a piece and actually have some really good notes that you can follow through or get you back onto speed of what you're doing? So it, that's the hardest thing. It's, it's always, the temptation is always to run as fast as possible and you want to get the next thing out, but actually take a breath, spend Fridays writing up some documentation on what's happened the week before, really making sure that's checked and done. And as a manager, getting your team to showcase what they do is another big learning thing for me. It's always well them saying, yeah, I've done this and done this on, on, on a sort of checklist, but actually going, show me, talk, talk, talk it through. You know, obviously you should be doing code reviews, you should be doing design reviews, but on a daily basis, put your team on the spot, get them to constantly show you what you're doing. Um, it's really, really, it's been invaluable to us. Thanks for sharing those, Will. Um, much appreciated. That brings us to the end of uh, of the questions. We really just have one final one, which is a, a platform for you to discuss anything that you wanted to talk about today but haven't had the chance to and uh, to tell everyone where they can follow the journey and, and support you. Absolutely. Obviously, we've got a number of um, social media channels. You can follow us on also our website. So it's just csal.eco. So it's about as simple as we can get it. And watch out for this year. So we're hoping to do a new round of um, equity financing towards the middle of this year. And we're still currently positioning ourselves with a, a sort of comp- combined offering around sort of reefs with marine data. Fantastic. I didn't actually even ask you about the equity crowdfunding. It was a successful process for you, obviously going back and doing it again. So it must have worked uh, quite well for you. Funding is always... I think a challenge, and I think it's probably the single biggest challenge, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, for any any startup. And it can go, it can be very easy. There is the, the what I find is there's an awful lot of experts out there, but they all want, you know, <laughs> ridiculous fees for what it is that they're ever going to do. But the, the truth is, you, I'm not Steve Jobs, so we're not super successful. So it's a bit bit early for me to say, you know, give huge amounts of advice on this but my my sense is that you know if you can really just focus on building a really good product and you can get get your story there isn't really anybody else out there who can actually sell this for me you know there's lots of people who can provide me with some advice and help me make make a slightly better deck and all that sort of stuff but it's but it, ultimately it's on me and my team to actually get out there and, and raise the money the trouble for that is of course that when we go and do that it takes us away from the day job and the work that we really love. So funding is, is if you're not careful, you end up um, spending a disproportionate amount of your year. And when you get to the end of it, you just need a huge holiday. So before you know it, you know, it's three months out or four months out of a year, you know, just spent on financing, um, which, is, which is just disproportionate. But um, this year we're hoping to raise uh, quite a significant amount in terms of giving us a sort of runway for sort of three, four years. Um, and that should lead us into a sort of profitability as well. So I'm hoping this will be the last major um, crowdfunding raise we do. What crowdfunding, by the way, it's not going to be crowdfunding. It will be equity with VCs, etc. Great. Yeah, just in, so for, for your sake and for everyone listening in, I mean, that is so much uh, the rationale behind what we're trying to do at OIO is sort of recognising that the last thing we need people like you and teams like yours doing is struggling so much on that piece of the puzzle when they've got a lot of work to do to build a, a better, healthier future for Planet Ocean. So that's really at the core of our whole ethos of existing. So we wish you well, Will. Um, we're very excited to follow the journey and we once again thank you for your time and for all your efforts. Thank you, Tim. Can't take it.
Guys, we hope you enjoy this episode. Please leave us a bit of feedback. It really helps us out. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. On Spotify, you can let us know what you loved about the episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to drop us a comment or hit the like button. It means a lot. 